0: Welcome to the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit us at compasslu.org Well, good morning. We're going to be continuing in our series on true faith. And uh, last week, we talked about true faith in adversity, and we looked at uh, Adam led us through uh, Jeremiah, the examples of Jeremiah and Daniel And so this morning we're going to do True Faith in Adversity, Part 2, the post-Pentecost edition, uh, with Peter and Paul. And so uh, I wanted to bring up the five facts of faith. I've been bringing them back a couple times in this uh, series, but it's been a couple weeks, so I thought I'd bring them back up. We're not going to go through them more than once today, but I want to keep them in the back of our minds this morning. So the five facts. Number one, faith is not about me. It's about him. Uh, Number two, faith does not guarantee anything specific or anything in a specific time frame, even a promise from God. Uh, The third one is that faith requires action. The fourth one is that faith, like any relationship of trust, can grow or diminish over time. We're actually going to see that in another example today. So what are we doing to build our faith is the operative question. And then fifth, whose idea is it anyway? Uh, We're going to look at two examples of people in prison, and I can guarantee you that neither one of them wanted to be in prison. Okay, So this was not their idea, the situation that they were in. Uh, But before we get to Peter and Paul, let's turn to Luke chapter 8 if you have your Bible with you. If not, we'll display the scriptures as we always do on the screen. Because I want to take a brief look at Jesus' faith. Because we're going to see that Jesus' faith was foundational for Peter's faith. It was foundational for Paul's faith. And before we get into this account, we're going to look at an account where the disciples are with Jesus on a boat. And it's important for us to remember that... the characters that we're reading about here in Luke were well-versed in seafaring, okay? These are people that had been on boats. Um, To my recollection, at least three of them, uh, the two sons of thunder, uh, James and John and Peter, were all fishermen before they came to Christ. So these are guys that grew up on boats, that were always on this particular lake all the time. Um, So these these are skilled people. These are not amateurs. These are not uh, weak men. These are strong men who are used to being in difficult situations on water, okay? So when we're, we're in Luke chapter 8, verse 22 is where we'll pick it up. Uh, one day, he, Jesus, got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, let's go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. Uh, so this is not an uncommon thing. They do this all the time. They take a boat, they escape, they go off somewhere else. Verse 23, and as they, sa- they sailed, he fell asleep, uh, also not an uncommon thing. You know, he trusts these guys. They're, they're good sailors. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. Verse 24, and they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where's your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. So usually when we approach this passage, especially when we're thinking about the faith aspect of this passage, we think about the miraculous side of this. We think about him, you know, Jesus proclaiming over the water and for them subsiding. But I want to point out that the faith in this record doesn't start there. It doesn't start when he's proclaiming something and the winds in the, in the water die down. The faith begins when he's asleep when this is going on, Right? Because what does Jesus know that the disciples may not know? He knows this is not how he's going to die. <laughs> I'm not going to die today. He was not going to die on some boat on a lake in the middle of a storm. Uh, can you imagine the local news story back then? You know, he gets on the news. and "Oh, no. uh, Local prophet, who many thought would be the Messiah, died at sea today. He drowned. He was 30 years old. Details at 11. You know, right? Like that's the local news story. Jesus knew that wasn't going to happen. Jesus knew that God was going to protect him in all these different circumstances. That's why he could sleep in a tiny boat in the middle of a big storm. Um, and it was terrifying. I mean, like I said, the small boat, big storm is not a good combination. And these guys were seasoned, seasoned people on the sea, and they were still afraid. So um, what separated Jesus from his disciples in this moment? It wasn't just the faith that he had to proclaim this thing and have the wind and the waves subside, it was his complete confidence in God so that he could sleep during that storm. And one of those fishermen with Jesus learned a lesson about life that night, and we can, we're going to see today that he lived it later. We can turn to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. In our lives, we're not, we don't frequently find ourselves on small boats in large storms, literally, <laughs> but sometimes life can feel that way. And Peter had a situation later in his life where he probably did had temptation to feel that way. In Acts chapter twelve, um, toward the end of the Peter section in the book of Acts, verse uh, one, chapter twelve, verse one. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. So, one of the fishermen I was talking about earlier one of the twelve, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, and when they had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So Peter, in this record, was in prison for about a week, though the the, uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was going on. That's a week-long ceremony. And so Herod wanted to kill him, and he didn't want to do it during the feast. You know, he's a nice enough guy. He's not going to kill him during the feast. He's going to wait till after the feast. Now, Peter was guarded by four guards at all times. There would have been a guy strapped on his left arm, a guy strapped on his right arm, and then he would have had two guys outside the door. So unless you like Ocean's Eleven or, you know, like heist movies, like there's no way he's getting out of this, okay? It's, it's totally impossible. He's not, he's not getting out. And since the disciples knew that they couldn't do anything to break him out directly, they did the one thing that they knew to do. They were praying for him. And I think there's a, an incredible lesson for us uh, when we observe people around us going through issues like this, that we can, this is one thing that we can do. We can pray for them. Um, but what, what was Peter doing? Verse 6, now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. So they were praying for him, but was Peter praying? Was he pleading to God for his life? No, he was asleep. Now Peter, it's impossible to know whether Peter knew that this was supposed to be his last night on earth, but uh, given the context of the situation, given the fact that he wasn't being killed because it was during a feast week, given that Peter knew what the feast weeks were, right? Do you think that Peter might have known that this could have been his last night on earth? I think so. I think so. I think the lesson we're supposed to learn here is Peter thinks this is his last night on earth and he's sleeping. So why could Peter sleep during this? Do you think he learned about faith? Do you think he learned something from his Lord? Yeah, Peter had absolute trust in God. He had absolute trust in God. And when I say that, I want to be clear about something in the rest of the record. Peter didn't think he was going to get saved. In fact, in the rest of the account, we're going to read it, but actually his salvation is happening. He's being saved, and he thinks it's all a dream. He thinks he's imagining it. So when I say that Peter had absolute trust in God, what I mean is Peter knew sort of win or lose, i want to put those in air quotes. Win or lose, he was in God's hands. And that he trusted God to take care of whatever was going to happen to him. It was going to be what God wanted him to, to go through. And so when we think about this, we're not going to turn there, but I want to read Romans 14.8. This is how the Apostle Paul said it. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. The point that Paul's making here, the point that I think Peter understands here in this record is, It doesn't matter if we live to be 100 years old in this life or not. It doesn't matter if we live to be 60 years old in this life or not. What matters the most is that we are the Lord's, that we belong to the Lord. That's what matters. Peter understood this. That's why he's able to sleep. Because whether Herod pulls him out of prison the next morning and he dies for Christ, that's what he needs to do. He's he's ready and he's accepted that. Thankfully, God breaks him out of prison. We'll see this in verse 7. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. All this presumably happened without the guards waking up. Now imagine all the angel sightings in the Old Testament, the bright light and all the stuff going on. Like, it's miraculous what's going on here. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord and then went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So he knew that there were people praying for him. And so he goes and checks on them, and a pretty funny incident occurs here. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice In her joy, she had not opened the gate, but ran in her reported that Peter was standing outside the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind, but she kept insisting it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel, whatever that means, I don't know. Uh, But Peter (laughs) continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent, they, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. I can imagine that. You think you strap two guys to a guy, you put two guys outside the door, you're covered, you know. But no, not so much. You have all these watches going on outside the prison. No. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. So uh, Peter ends up leaving Judea because it's obviously too dangerous for him to be there. He goes to Caesarea and spends some time there. So here's the thing about this record is Peter's asleep because he has faith in God. Just like we saw Jesus on the boat in the middle of the storm, asleep because he had faith in God. And so sometimes... I think when we're in the middle of the storm, we have to have the confidence in God to sleep, to get that rest, and let others uh, work with us and fight with us. From, a, from a, my perspective, from my background of thinking about faith, the other thing that's striking to me about this record is uh, both sides were surprised when the deliverance came. And I'm not saying this in a, like a negative toward God way. I'm saying that they were asking God, they were doing what they knew to do, And they weren't like, you know, have you heard the term manifesting before? They weren't manifesting this. Peter's expectation was not to get brought out of prison. Their expectation was not that he would get out of prison necessarily in this miraculous way. God worked it out that way because they were asking him and because they had faith. But faith doesn't work sometimes the way that we think it's going to work. That's the point I'm trying to make here. And God rescued Peter, and he lived for many years in service to God after this night. This was supposed to be his last night on earth. And God said, nope, not your last night. Let's turn to Acts chapter 16. I want to look at an example of Paul in prison in a similar circumstance, um, also not an easy circumstance. And we're going to see how he responds. It's similar to how Peter responds in some respects. In Acts chapter 16, we'll pick it up in verse 16. I want to get a little bit of a running start to show you what Paul was doing to get thrown in prison. It was terrible stuff what he was doing. You know, he definitely deserved... <laughs> being thrown in prison for this Uh, verse 16 and as we were going to the place of prayer we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling she followed Paul and us crying out these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation and this she kept doing for many days so Paul has some patience here he doesn't shut her down the first day he lets her do it for a couple days The crowd joined in attacking them. So they whip up this mob here, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. So that that order is going to be important. We'll get there in a second. Having received this order, he, the jailer, uh, put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So the jailer receives this order, and he puts them in the stock. So I think it's somewhat of an amplification of the order. And we're going to learn more about this jailer here in a second. So, but first, what was Paul's crime? What was Paul's crime? What did he do that was so bad? He liberated a woman from a demon. Is that a crime? No. But, of course, it affects the local economy, right? And sometimes the power of God does disrupt the local economy. I can think of... Jesus uh, casting the spirits out of Legion into the swine and the swine running over the cliff, right? That disrupted the local economy. He got kicked out of that area because they didn't want him around anymore. And similarly, because the power of God disrupted the local economy here, uh, they whip up a crowd, uh, these, these owners of the slave uh, girl. And Paul and Silas are Roman citizens, uh, and they should not have been treated this way, but they're attacked by a mob. They're stripped of their clothes. They're beaten with rods, and they're thrown into prison. And we see that they're thrown into the innermost part of the prison and they're fastened in the stocks. So again, every attention is taken to make sure that these men do not escape. Um, it's interesting about the stocks. I didn't know this. I wanted to share this. This is what Clint Arnold said in the uh, ZIBBC commentary on Act 1624. The inner cell was typically reserved for those who committed serious crimes and for those of low social status. I want to pause here for a second. Did Paul fit either Paul and Silas did they fit either of these criteria? No. No. They were both Roman citizens. They were not of low social status and they had not committed serious crimes. Oh, it's fascinating. The magistrates intended to demoralize and humiliate the two men. A set of Roman legstocks was found in the gladiators barracks at Pompeii, Italy, and illustrate the kind of mechanism con- uh, securing Paul and Silas. It was a long metal comb with spaces between each of the teeth for the legs of a number of prisoners to be placed. A metal rod was inserted into the holes in the top of each tooth and anchored to the floor. The bar pressed tightly on the legs and made impossible for the prisoners to shift positions to avoid discomfort. Sleep was only possible through laying or sitting on the floor. The stocks were not only a security measure but were also a form of torture. So I wonder if Paul and Silas would have been sleeping had they not been in the stocks, but the stocks certainly made sleeping like Peter did a little bit more difficult. Now, I want to address the question of why did Paul and Silas not announce their citizenship? At least according to the text, it doesn't tell us that they tried to do this. Um, Because if they had, they at least would have had some due process before receiving this treatment. Now, they still might have received this treatment after a trial, but uh, they would have been guaranteed at least a trial and some time to to sort all all the facts of the case out. I, I think there are three possibilities here. The first possibility is that they tried, but they were unsuccessful because of the mob. That's sort of one option. Uh, the second is because maybe Paul and Silas thought um, they took the beating because they wanted to show sort of like solidarity with the local church, many of whom would not have been Roman citizens. And so they wanted to show the other, local, you know, the other local believers that, hey, the gospel's worth suffering for. Like we're in it with you, and the gospel's worth suffering for. And finally, it's possible that God told Paul or Silas or both of them that, hey, like you need to be in prison. Just go. Just trust me. Um, those are sort of the three possibilities. Now, in Acts 22, Paul is in front of a Jewish mob, uh, essentially in the same situation, and he finds the time to get the Roman authorities and tell them, hey, I'm a Roman citizen, like, you can't treat me like this. Um, and so I, I sort of discount option one. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big one in the commentaries, but I just don't see how reasonable it is. I think Paul and Silas, it's pretty easy to be like, hey, I'm a Roman. That's, it's pretty easy to get that out. Um, so I tend to think that option two and/or option three is best. So with that in mind, that they were there on a mission um, either to suffer alongside the other believers or on a mission directly from God by revelation. Let's keep reading. In verse 25, it says, "About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Can you imagine that? <laughs> You're in the innermost part of the prison. You've been wrongly imprisoned on multiple levels. You're being tortured at the same time. And what they're doing is they're praying and singing praises to God. What does that tell you about the faith of Paul and Silas? Pretty remarkable, huh? And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Let's keep reading verse 27. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And remember, this is the same jailer who took the order, which was a very general order, and specifically put them in the innermost part of the prison in a torture device. This is the jailer we're talking about. That jailer heard them singing and praying. This is what he does in verse 29. He called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. They didn't wait long to baptize people back then. (laughs) They just like, If you're believing, we're going to take care of it right now. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out and go in peace. So the jailer's like, Hey, you've been released. You can go, and this is a good thing. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens. So now he plays the Roman card. He, hasn't, he didn't do it before, but he's going to play it now. And have thrown us into prison, and do they, not, uh, do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. See, Paul could have you know, sent this information to Rome, and these magistrates could have gotten beaten or imprisoned or worse for all this. So verse 39, So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia the people who had been praying for them. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So very similar in many respects to the incident with Peter earlier. So look at what God was able to do through these two men, Paul and Silas, who trusted him. And again, I I tend to think that that they received some information from God that they needed to go in and not play that Roman card earlier in this record. Uh, That they needed to be in prison because God knew that the jailer would respond. God had a greater mission for Paul and Silas. And so sometimes when we face difficult things in life, I think we tend to be me-focused. We think like, God, why is this happening to me? What's going on? Like, what have I done to deserve this God? that's very self-focused. But Paul and Silas weren't self-focused. They were God-focused, and they were mission-focused. And I think we can learn a lot from this. In the book, Wild at Heart, John Eldredge says that we should ask these types of questions in times of difficulty. Uh, And the top four are his, and then the bottom one is mine. So John Eldredge says, these are the four questions he recommends. What are you trying to teach me here? What issues in my heart are you trying to raise through this? What is it that you want me to see? What are you asking me to let go of? Then to these, I'll add, What can I do for you or your people through this? Because I think that there are times in our lives where we go through difficult circumstances and God's not necessarily behind it. He's not necessarily the one orchestrating it like a test or something like that. Sometimes the devil's attacking us. Sometimes things happen just naturally in our lives. We end up going through a difficult season. And in that difficult season, God can still walk us through that and still teach us through that and still lead us through that. Um, in a powerful way, just like he led Paul and Silas out of prison in a powerful way. And along the way, picked up the jailer and his whole family, and they all became believers. So, as I reflected upon what we're talking about this morning, um, I, th- I think growing up, I tended to view faith sort of like a vending machine where I would uh, go to God for the things that I want. You know, it's like if I want something, I go to God. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily a bad thing. God wants us to ask him for things, especially godly things like, like healing um, or, or, or uh, wisdom or guidance or something like that. You know, God wants us to go to him and ask him uh, for those things. I'm not saying don't do that. I'm not saying stop asking God for things. That's not the point. I'm saying that faith is not like that. Faith is not, that's not faith. Faith is not going to God like that. It's not asking him for things. Um, Paul viewed faith as trusting God to the point where he could give everything to God, just like Abraham gave up the thing that was most important to him. He gave up his only son. Um, That is what faith is about. It's, It's not necessarily asking God, receiving something from God. That's not faith. Faith is trusting in God no matter what's going on in our lives. And some people say that Paul had an obsession with martyrdom because, again, the Romans one I talked about earlier, there's other things where he's like, if I live, I live. If I die, I die. It's like maybe Stephen, you know, seeing Stephen uh, die uh, had such an impact on the Apostle Paul that like, he wanted to die for Christ. You know, maybe that's true. Maybe he had somewhat of a weird thing about martyrdom. I don't know. I don't know about that. What I do know is that Paul was obsessed. This is what he was obsessed with. He was obsessed with Jesus being his Lord. He was obsessed with trusting God and following God, no matter if God led him into prison, that's fine. If God leads me to do this, that's fine. If he leads me into a shipwreck, that's fine. Now, there was also a shipwreck that Paul warned people, and they didn't listen to him. And he ended up shipwrecked. That wasn't God's fault, and that wasn't his fault. But Paul, like Abraham, like Jeremiah, like Daniel, like Peter, and yes, like the Lord Jesus, knew that his faith wasn't about him, it was about God, and it was about where God wanted to lead him, how he could trust, how he could believe in God, and how he knew that God would carry him through no matter what. So therefore, it isn't always about what we want. It's about trusting that what God wants for us, his goals for us, his vision for us, is better than whatever vision we have for ourselves. It's better than whatever plans that we have for ourselves. Even if that means going to prison, I'm sure if Paul knew the end from the beginning, he would have been like, I'll do a night in the stocks to get this jailer saved. Paul would have done that, and God knew that. So God, you know, worked with him and got him into prison. Even if it means enduring persecution, even if it means enduring mocking, Jeremiah, man, endured mocking left and right, endured persecution left and right, and still trusted And so when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about also how we sing about surrender during worship time. And that can be a weird phrase for some of us. Uh, This isn't about surrendering our mental faculties, going with the flow, or getting wild in the spirit, or something like that. Surrendering is about surrendering your lordship to Jesus and trusting in him and in our Father that they know what's best for our lives. That's what surrender is about. When we sing about surrender in our worship services, it's about saying, God, I trust you so much that you could lead me into a storm, and I would trust you that I needed to be there for some reason. I need to talk to someone in that situation, or I'm going to reach someone, or I'm going to learn something about myself, or I'm going to learn something about the people around me. Whatever the case might be, God might lead you into a difficult circumstance just to walk you hand-in-hand through it. There's examples of it throughout the Bible. So in closing, I wanted to adapt a quote from John F. Kennedy. Faith is not just about what God can do for us. There is an element of that, but it's not just about that. Faith is also about what we are willing to do for God. So my exhortation this week is that we look at these examples that we've seen in this whole whole series to this point We recognize that as we increase, we intentionally uh, go to God, and we intentionally develop that trust and build that relationship with God, that as we do that, we may end up going through (laughs) situations that are uncomfortable or things that we'd rather not do, um, but that we can trust that God will be with us powerfully through all of it. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful for uh, Peter and Paul, for their ministries, for their stand, for how they learned from your son, Jesus, and how uh, that dynamically affected their life. We're so thankful for the fact that um, they trusted you in some incredible circumstances, God, that no matter what happened, that they knew that you would take care of them, that you would be with them, that you would provide for them. And we know, Father, that our deaths, that's not the end, Father, that our eternal life starts the moment that we meet you and encounter you and become born again and see your salvation in our lives, that that's that's the first day of the rest of our lives. That's the first day of eternal life, that we don't have fear of death anymore. We would rather, of course, live long, prosperous lives here on earth and share your gospel and do the things that you've called us to do, Father. But we're thankful for the men and women who paid the ultimate price for us starting with Jesus and and the men and women who lived courageously in the first century to make sure that we could, that the gospel would survive and live to this day, that we could sit here in the synagogue 2,000 years later and talk about you and talk about your son, Jesus. That took sacrifice through the ages, God. We're so thankful for that sacrifice. And we want to be men and women that will sacrifice in our day and time, that will trust you to the point where you can lead us where you want us to go, and that we will trust you even if it looks dark, even if it looks weird, even if it looks unpleasant, that we will take you by the hand and we will follow you into that to rescue others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. For more information on how we are striving to follow Jesus together, here in Louisville, Kentucky, check out our website, compasslou.org, where you can subscribe to our newsletter and view additional resources.